Maybe we should start talking about our genealogy to help with that. Goodness, can you imagine a podcast like that? Welcome, listeners, to episode 107 of Researching Your Genealogy with Kevin Bartolacci and Hartley Wright. I don't think we want to uncover that rock. My, my dad has been an avid oh, genealogist that's right. for that's right. 30 your, years. Yeah, your dad has. He's actually looking for a caretaker to take care of all of his data because none of his boys are interested. My own opinion is that I'd rather invest time in people that are still breathing. That's a funny value to have. Kevin. I guess. It's an unusual value. I mean, come on, man. Get your priorities straight. I'm trying. Welcome to the Faith, Finances, and F-Bombs podcast, where we inspire you to manage your money, find your soul, and cover your ears. Join host Hartley Wright a certified spiritual director, and Kevin Bartolacci, director of research and education at Sunvold Financial Investment Advisory Firm. Together, they hope to help you discover the benefits of enriching your life as they entertain one another, and hopefully you too. I'd say at this point in time, it's very clear whether we're entertaining you too. And I'd say at this point in time, you it is very clear to you that we certainly entertain each other. Although sometimes maybe not as much as others, I don't know. Comes down to whether we feel we are funny or clever. Right. What kind of feedback are you getting on your webpage? Uh, in in terms of in terms of this, uh, nothing. absolutely nothing. I have I have nothing. We're we're in the dark, my friend. All right. We're in the dark. So I guess we'll press on. Let's do it. If nothing, if for no other reason, just to. Uh, I guess, would it be entertain ourselves? Would that be the answer? Or just... Yeah. The sea was angry that day, my friend. What is that, a titleist? The fish, mammal, whatever. We are talking about some things that brush against politics, and I've said before in previous episodes that I really don't want this to be about politics, but here are some things that I realize are realities that we live with, and they are certainly true in life. And because I'm a person who likes to follow my argument to a logical conclusion... I think I need to make a few statements here that our culture is religion incarnate and politics and government is an expression of our culture. One thing I want to mention is a quote that I have always appreciated by a man named Richard John Newhouse who said, culture is the root of politics and religion is the result of culture. Just this morning, I came across some notes and at first I wasn't sure why I had written these out and then I realized I was uh, listening to some news radio after the debate and they were playing clips It was during the last presidential debate of things that Donald Trump had said. I heard these statements that he made that had to do with the economy and in comparison to him versus Obama. The statements that he made were such, they were such declarations that I thought, I'm sure some of that cannot be true. So I looked them up. He made a statement about how Obama couldn't really help us recover. Like it was not a good recovery economically. From the 2000 from the deep from crisis. the deep recession, he said that he was in such a deep recession. I, I think the claim that Trump was saying that I turned everything around and I did it faster than Obama because Obama couldn't get us out of such a deep recession. In Reagan's administration, his Once recovery was 35 months. I added it up, and Obama did have 76 months, and it was the slowest recovery. Obama's policies were extremely slow. I think there were a lot of factors with that. Are you saying it took 
six years for the economy to get back to where it was prior to the I, 2008 financial crisis? I believe so. That's possible. It wasn't until well after the fact that we realized how close we were to a global meltdown in 2008. Not just the United States, but the entire global economy was teetering on the brink of just blowing up. The most criticism I heard of the Obama years, that it was yeah. it was more tepid. Right. Growth never just popped. But we also didn't have inflation. Exactly. And we had interest rates at zero. So there were a lot of things that were weird about that post-financial crisis recovery. And that would explain why it would take so long. Could have just been he was just being very cautious and very careful. Cautious and careful probably describe Obama's personality. You got to remember during that eight-year period, there were times where he did not have control of one. The Democrats did not have control of one branch of the House or the other. I should say the Congress. So during those two-year periods, or however long they would last, there was a very open opposition from the Republican Party to make sure that none of his policies were enacted. Even simple things like appointing judges that needed congressional approval. Now, this is just all political crap, but this is the way our system worked. So I think there's probably some validity in your documentation there that the the recovery in the Obama era seemed like it was very slow. The economy never really just got great guns right just kind of mold along it just yeah a little bit here a little bit there a little bit here nothing was nothing was volatile i just know that from the market perspective those were eight good years i've never seen anything like it in my career and i've only been doing this since 93 but in my professional life we've never had eight years like that in a row before yeah and i i don't expect it to happen again in my career people who are frustrated about trump supporters Share frustration in the sense that, from their perspective, they said the wealthy love Trump. Wealth gap has increased. Yes. The richest 1% have gotten richer. The middle class is still lagging behind. In many ways, the wealth got wealthier during the pandemic. They did. Yeah. Statistically proven. Yes. So we've been talking about Lent, a time to return to God for some of you, a time to come to God. And so we've had a theme every week. The first week we talked about solitude. The second week was self-denial. Then in the third week, repentance. Last episode, confession, coming home to God. For this week, week five would be suffering, dying that we might live. When God begins to do a new thing, old things must pass away. Suffering can be a subjective term. Some people call some things suffering that aren't really suffering. Living without Diet Coke for six weeks is not really suffering. It doesn't make the cut. <laughs> it doesn't make the cut. So the suffering comes from suffering with Christ. This really has to do with our true self and our false self. I have to die to myself, but myself really wants, knowing that this is better for me and knowing that this is something God is calling me to do and to add to my life so that I can live the best life that God wants me to live and to be my very best self. So the death of that which is false in order for something truer to come to life. So something false in our life. It's usually something in terms of self-reference living or a uh, sinful pattern that's in your life or is in contradiction to uh, what would be a good reflection of his working in your life and having a relationship with him. And as we draw near to him and he draws near to us, there's something that we have to get rid of. There's something that we have to let die in order for that relationship to grow in that way. Lent is a time for us to practice dying in small ways so that when the bigger deaths come, we will know how to let go of what we realize we no longer need. 
when God begins to do a new thing, old things must pass away. In reflection, we need to ask ourselves, what needs to die in me in order for the will of God to come forth in my life? That would be one question. Another question, what new thing is God doing in my life that requires some old things to pass away? And here's a great question. Where do I sense God wanting to teach me obedience through the things I am suffering? I have not read this book. I'm going to recommend a book because I've heard someone talking about it. It's written in the form of a novel. The author's name is Penelope Wilcock. It's called The Wilderness Within You, A Lenten Journey with Jesus Deep in Conversation. Singing, 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 singing away, singing away. Talk a little finances. Yeah. Last week, the European Central Bank raised interest rates 50 basis points. We have our own Federal Reserve meeting going on. Really, three options. Do nothing, raise rates quarter point, or raise rates 50 basis points. On Wednesday, March 22nd, Federal Reserve raised interest rates 25 basis points, which was what we were expecting from the last meeting. That was kind of the signals they sent out. I, I caught an article this morning titled that caught my eye. It's on the site that I prefer to keep on most of the day, which is Market Watch. And it says, money market funds swell to a record $5.4 trillion as assets pour in at the fastest pace since pandemic after the SVB collapse. And for those of you who don't know that acronym, that was the bank out on the West Coast, the Silicon Valley Bank, that collapsed last week. Here's what I would say to you as a contrarian. When I read that headline, this makes me immediately think the worst must be over and that the market's getting ready to turn north. Really? Yeah. So you may say... Why would you say that, Kevin? Why would you say that, Kevin? $5.4 trillion sitting in cash? What would why? make you think, this is why? There's a lot of research. <laughs> I'm really not trying to pick on people, especially not you loyal listeners out there. But there's a lot of research that suggests that we as human beings are flawed decision makers because we let emotions influence our decisions. Well, that is oh, very true. So what I see as a contrarian individual is I see this total and I go, holy smokes, that is a whole bunch of people that think the market's going to keep going south. They must be wrong because they always are. This is the contrarian point of view I'm sharing. Right. So that's what the contrarian would say. You watch what the majority of people are doing and you do the opposite because they're going to be wrong. Unfortunately, there's a whole bunch of academic research that backs up that perspective. So if, you, if you're if you a money manager or an advisor like I am and you see a lot of people getting out of the market, that probably means you ought to get in. And the same thing when you see a bunch of money flowing back in, you might want to start getting cautious and think about taking money out. The yeah. key is, is it true? And we won't know that for weeks. But when you see a headline like that, I just want you to have a reaction in your own brain that goes, hey, wait a minute. If everyone else is doing that, maybe that's the wrong thing to do. You could apply that lesson to a lot of life, in my opinion. That's where we're at. We're still up year to date. If you're familiar with the debate between growth and value, growth has been where all the money's being made this year. Value is getting kicked in the teeth, and that would be large cap, mid cap, and small cap values. They are all trailing their large cap or their growth counterpoint. Large cap, mid cap, and small cap growth are all doing pretty well. Internationals are actually doing okay this year. So that's where we stand year to date. Positive numbers are good. In a presentation my wife delivered delivered recently. All right. 
she asked the question. She started this presentation with like a pop quiz. I thought it was a very clever thing that she did because the first question, what did you feel when I said there was going to be a pop quiz? What was your reaction? Her second question was this, true or false? All information you receive, you process in the emotional state. Are you asking me? Yeah. What would you think? I would think that would be correct. It is correct. Because that's our default reaction. Yeah. I bring that up because you just stated we make decisions based on our emotions yeah. too much. Yeah. We need to be mindful of that. If you're in conflict with your with a loved one or a spouse or a good friend, you're processing that in the emotional state and you probably shouldn't react in that. You need to regulate. That's right. why right. that's why self-regulation is an important thing to learn and important thing to master. That story I shared on the last episode, I receive all this information. I need to go have silence and solitude with God, have prayer, confession, and just take care of what needs to be taken care of. And I deal with that emotionally. I didn't regulate anything. So therefore I went to the I stayed in the emotional state through that whole time. Right. Oh my God, I'm going to, yeah. A, a book I would highly recommend. Yeah. And I have read this one. It's been thought of as being revolutionary. It's written by a Nobel Prize winner in economics. He won that prize, the Nobel Prize in economics, but he is a behaviorist. He is a psychologist. His name is Daniel Kahneman. The title is Thinking Fast and Slow. Landmark book about how we process information. So based on what you just said in the quiz, uh-huh. uh, he would agree that we are emotional animals. He said that's just part of our hard wiring. Exactly. But his thinking fast and slow has that's two different ways that we think. The fast is the quick twitch, I gotta make a decision right now, versus the more detailed, analytic, sitting down, looking at all the factors. Let me ask you this uh-huh. financially speaking. So clearly you're thinking Things are going to go north. We You're don't, talking about the stock market? The stock market. Okay. We may have listeners that are living paycheck to paycheck. We also have listeners, I'm sure, that uh, are further along in their years and at a place in life where they've acquired some. This word comes with baggage for so many people, but they've acquired some wealth. Mm-hmm. Because I believe, and I would like to think we have listeners on both extremes, I just want to ask this question because I want to be helpful for our listeners and what, what I think would be good advice and what is not good advice. So I think that even if we are in a place in which the economy is turning north and looking good, at least the stock market wise, even so, I think it's always wise for us to minimize or eliminate all of our consumer debt. I'm sure you would agree. Yeah, that's actually one of the things that uh, I agree with Dave Ramsey on. I just read a Dave Ramsey story this morning. So this is great timing. I'd seen data on this 20 years ago. You know those charts where they say, a typical household has X percent that they pay on their mortgage, X percent for their insurance, X percent for their utility bills, blah, blah, blah. So you can look at your own situation and go, oh, I wonder where, wonder where we're at compared to everyone else. The headline was like, Dave Ramsey says you should have this amount of principal residence for your mortgage. Uh-huh. And I couldn't remember for life me what those numbers looked like 20 years ago. I think it's in my top desk drawer. At work. So now I'm going to have to pull it out and compare to see if it's changed any. But I read the article and the recommendation he's, he's using, and I think it must be pretty close to what he has always said, 25% of your take-home, not your gross, but your net, yeah. he recommends not having a house payment in excess of 25%. So for the listeners out there that are wondering, are we in too much house or are we doing really good here? There's a little benchmark for you that's pretty widely accepted in the Dave Ramsey universe is 25% of your net pay should be where you cap out your housing expense because otherwise you don't have enough 
cash-free flow to take care of everything else you need to take care of. That makes sense. That's reasonable. Yeah, he's also very adamant that you should always do 10% into your either your IRAs or your company-sponsored programs. And that's the same number we use in the financial services industry. It's been that way ever since I started. 10% always been the goal. But I will tell you, it is a small minority of people that are doing 10% or more in their 401k. I would not be surprised. I am not surprised yeah. to hear that. Small minority. I'm talking single digits. Most people are doing somewhere between 3 and 8. Hardly anybody I ever sit down with is doing 10 or more. From the time I entered the workforce until I was 33, 34, I put in zero. Yeah. Well, that's what most people do. Oh, so I was, I, I shouldn't feel bad about that? No, I shouldn't normal. feel like an idiot? No. Okay. Because that's, that's more normal. You know, we had, a, we had a long period of time where a lot of people didn't have access to retirement plans because they were expensive to maintain. They cost a lot to run from an actuarial perspective. They were an expense most employers, unless they were a larger employer, didn't want to mess with. So they said, the burden's on you. This is also the time period in which they eliminate all the pensions. So now the burden was really <laughs> on the employee because there's no pension and no, no company-sponsored plan. So that's still one of the issues we have in this economy is we don't have access for a lot of people to save even if they wanted to. The other thing I would say is eliminate or minimize your consumer debt and then make sure you have a good, healthy savings, which is hard to do. And a good health insurance plan. When I say good, I'm not only referring to premiums. It's a combination of what kind of benefit you get from the premiums you've been Uh paying. The healthcare industry has just been in a state of flux for 20-plus years Mm -hmm. because of this whole idea of the universal healthcare concept that we don't have here. And I don't know if we ever will in my lifetime. I mean, we're one of 23 mature economies on the planet. Of those 23, we are the only one that doesn't have universal healthcare. Is that right? That is absolutely correct. We are the only major industrialized country without universal health care. I had this conversation. God bless his heart. An older, older friend of mine, veteran, very conservative, former Marine. We got in this discussion during the first Obama campaign about socialized medicine, universal health care. Mm-hmm. He was all negative, blah, 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 blah. Can't do that. Can't do that. And I said, didn't you get your... Knee replacement done at the VA? <laughs> yep. Didn't cost me anything. And I'm like, well, what's the difference? You had health care. He's also was old enough for Medicare, but you got it all done at the VA. They covered everything. That's, I mean, that's, that's the, yeah. that by defin, that definition, that was universal health care. But he just couldn't connect it. No, that's the VA. I have that because I was in the Marines. Yeah. And then after you got in the Marines, you were probably on TRICARE for oh your whole life. God. What do you think runs that? He didn't, Blue he, didn't Cross. Give, he didn't give it any thought. No. He just knows they cover everything. It's funny where we check out on things like that. Yeah. We do not take our arguments to a logical conclusion. No, we do not. Because we are emotion-driven. That's right. And logic we is process not everything in the emotional state. Yeah. Okay, so for our listener that is able to invest, and this is a standard I heard many, many years ago, and I want to know what, you would, what your opinion is. All right. You should have about 5% or less in small allocations in emerging markets. Have more of a global diversification versus domestic. Well, we need to dig into what your definition of global is. Okay, and it's not my definition. Okay. Then let me tell you the problem with global. Okay. When that's in the name of the fund, the odds are that the vast majority of that portfolio is in U.S. stocks. Okay. Because by definition, they go anywhere in the globe. And because the U.S. economy has been the strongest for years now, they have parked most of their assets in the U.S. 
okay. equities. I personally, when I'm talking to people, do not like global. Because I want, like your first one was, where you talked about emerging markets, I want some of that. I want some developed markets. This is what we would normally call international exposure. By definition, every one of those companies are not housed. They're not domiciled in the United States. Think of Toyota, Honda, right. uh, Nestle. I mean, pick one that you know is a foreign company. That's what I'm looking for. If I, if I turn it over to a global manager, they may be buying the same thing I've got in my large cap stock index. Uh-huh. They may have Amazon, Microsoft, Apple. Well, now I've got duplication. I was trying to have diversification. But you, but in your opinion, you do think it is wise to have. I have, do. Yeah. Okay. Yes, yeah, so depending on the risk tolerance and where the person's at, but I would say somewhere between five and ten percent exposure in stuff outside the U.S., which would be your emerging markets and your, right. your developed internationals. Yeah. Okay. Smaller dividends, but greater growth. That would probably be related to this idea of value versus growth. The growth ones pay no dividends at all or very little because they're reinvesting money back into mergers and acquisitions, research and development. They're they're looking to grow their business where Prudential Financial, one of my old employers, they were a mutual company then. They're publicly traded and have been for 20 plus years now. They are without a doubt what we would call a value stock. They've been around 160 years, something of that nature. They are paying a dividend in excess of 6% right now. Their P ratio is low. They are a mature company. They're, they're a pretty good poster child for what we're talking about with value stocks. AT&T would be another one. Mm-hmm. Big dividend. Google, on the other hand, doesn't pay a dividend. They're about growth. Growth, 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 growth. Google. You have the same classification, and I mentioned it earlier, large caps, mid caps, and small caps. All of those have value blended growth. Where do you stand on on uh, bonds right now? Well, funny you should ask. I had a phone conversation with a client today who's sixty four. So we talked about that, and I'll, I'll tell you, your our listeners, same thing I told her. I would wait on bonds until we're done with the Fed rate hike cycle, which I think will be sometime in the next three months. At that point, we can reconsider having bonds in the portfolio. As long as the Fed keeps raising rates, bond price is going to get killed. I don't mm-hmm. think I shared this on any of our previous podcasts, but when I did my meetings last week at Midway, I have whiteboards at my disposal and I utilize them because I can write stuff on them and tell the, tell the narrative that I think is important for that day. And I had the 2022 numbers for the aggregate bond index, minus 13 and some change. But in parentheses, I put the worst year ever. In the history of the bond markets, last year was the worst year ever. Given that we raised rates so fast and so often last year, that's not surprising to me. Rate at which rates are being raised this year has slowed. We'll have a lot more clarity in six weeks once we get past the next meeting. I'm thinking by mid-year, those people who need bonds for either a safe haven in their portfolio or need the income that bonds kick off, I feel like it'd be safe to look at that again. Anything you'd say stay away from in stocks? Crypto. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> Don't have to twist your arm on that one. Nope. The only other thing I would want to throw in there, and this is just kind of a little dig, is that American intellectuals pride themselves for being brave free thinkers, but for the most part, they are conformists. <laughs> Whatever that's worth. Just wanted to put it out there. Probably going to pay for that in some way. Nah, nobody's listening. Kevin, we have talked about so much. I don't. I don't think we could squeeze in any kind of f bomb. I think uh, our listeners are going to be short sighted. Oh, I forgot about that. the f bombs. 
I don't know if it's really an F-bomb for me. It's just something that is an adjustment that is affecting me in sporting events at concession stands on their cash register. Mm -hmm. Their POS system. Whatever. They turn that screen around toward you. Right there is a choice for you to put in a tip. Yeah. When I am in a situation in which traditionally in my lifetime I have not tipped, it's an adjustment for me to be presented with it and be faced with that decision now on a regular basis. Yeah. And it's everywhere. It's everywhere. Now, some people just don't. They just sign. They just yeah. pay it. They sign it. They don't do anything. Right. right. I may have to become more of a callous person to do that because I'm giving people tips. I haven't even mentioned this to Kelly. Kelly's going to hear this on the podcast, and she's going to say, what? How Exactly how much extra money has been going to the hot dog salesman? Right. So that's not really an F-bomb for me. It's just something that I'm having to adjust to. This is a concern to me. Maybe the listeners tune in to hear what kind of things either one of us may want to rant about. And we aren't doing any ranting in this one. It's this darn rainy cloud cover season. This is two episodes in a row. I can't get excited enough to rant. Yeah. This is two episodes in a row we've recorded on a rainy day. Spring. Rainy days and podcast Mondays always get me down. That's right. We have to say goodbye in some way, so let's just say, hey, listener, here's something you've never experienced. We're just going to say goodbye. Ciao. This podcast is for the purposes of education, information, and entertainment only, and is not a replacement for the professional services of a financial advisor, financial planner, spiritual clergy, spiritual counselor, or spiritual director. We suggest you seek out a trained professional for help with your financial and spiritual needs. The views and opinions expressed by the host and guest of Faith, Finances, and F-Bombs are solely their current opinions based upon information they consider reliable but do not represent those of people, institutions, or organizations the host and guest may or may not be associated with in professional or personal capacity unless explicitly stated. Any views or opinions provided by the podcast host and guest are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone or anything.